0: This week on P.A. Book's Founders Series, Jane Calvert on the Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania.
1: Welcome to the P.A. Book's Founders Series. I'm Phil Beckman. In 1767, a series of essays were published in the Pennsylvania Chronicle and Universal Advertiser that are known as the Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. They were written by John Dickinson in response to the British Parliament's Declaratory Act and the Townshend Acts. Joining us to talk about Dickinson's letters is Jane Calvert. She is an associate professor of history at the University of Kentucky and the director and editor of the John Dickinson Writings Project. Jane, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, let's start at the very beginning here. Who was John Dickinson?
2: John Dickinson was America's first political celebrity. He was um, born in Maryland, raised in uh, what we now call Delaware, which was the three lower counties of Pennsylvania. Um, he went to London to study law at the Middle Temple. Uh, he returned and uh, served in the legislature of the three lower counties, uh, then in the legislature of Pennsylvania. And he started uh, becoming active in the resistance to Britain during the Stamp Act. Uh, he started writing at that time. And uh, whereas the other writers at the time were uh, elite um, elite men writing to other elite men, he took a different approach. uh, And and rather than presenting uh, a theoretical uh, discussion about uh, why the taxes were uh, wrong, he decided to give Americans uh, something like a how-to guide to resist. And uh, so... After the Stamp Act was repealed and then the Declaratory Act was passed, uh, the Parliament more or less you know, gave with one hand and took away with the other. Uh, and the Declaratory Act declared that uh, Parliament could legislate for the colonies in all cases whatsoever. And they didn't do anything immediately. But then the next year, they passed the Townsend Duties, the Townsend Acts. And nobody nobody seemed to respond. Nobody seemed to be... Um, at all uh, uh, alarmed by these. And so Dickinson, uh, a highly trained lawyer who understood uh, how important precedent was, he kind of looked around and and thought somebody should do something and uh, so he stepped forward and wrote this series of 12 letters which, as you noted at the beginning, uh, were then uh, published in the, the Pennsylvania newspapers and then Published in most of the newspapers around the colonies, around the Atlantic world, uh, in in England, in Ireland, in uh, in France, uh, and uh, he became uh, the first transatlantic celebrity. And uh, so, other there the, there were a couple other of our you know sort of leading founders who were known at the time. Benjamin Franklin, of course, was famous for his scientific um, experiments and uh, George Washington had been known from uh, uh, earlier from his uh, journal about um, uh, the French and Indian War uh, but but Dickinson just uh, really sort of launched into into stardom and and became more or less a household name uh, as soon as his um, uh, his identity was known. And uh, so there were you know, images of him and statues and tributes and toasts and, and uh, just all manner of, um, of recognition. And uh, so from, from that point on until about um, 1775, after the uh, battles of Lexington and Concord, he was really seen as the spokesman for the American cause, and, uh, and everybody, you know, well, not everybody, but, you know, that's an, <laughs> an exaggeration, but, but people looked to him for advice about how to resist the British. And, uh, and, and he, 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 he went on and, and provided this leadership for as long as his country would allow it.
1: Was he, in, in the years before he wrote these letters, was he uh, associated with a particular political faction?
2: Um, n- no. Um, it's, so the, this is where the his, the history gets a little bit uh, confused. Uh, uh, so he he was um, claimed by factions. Um, so the the Pennsylvania uh, uh, the Pennsylvania political situation at the time was ex- extraordinarily complicated, and um, there, there were there were political factions. There was the Quaker Party. And there was the proprietary party, and 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 some lesser factions. And where we see this really come to the fore was that the the so-called Quaker party, uh, they got it in in their heads that they would like to abolish the charter of Pennsylvania uh, from 1701, and this was the charter that gave Quakers all of their unique liberties. And uh, so, so the and and of course the proprietary faction uh, that. The, that was the faction the the, pack, um, the faction supporting uh, the Penn family, of course, they didn't want the charter abolished because if Pennsylvania were placed under control of the crown, that would mean that the Penn family would lose lose their lose their proprietorship. So at this point, Dickinson was greatly alarmed because he did not want the Constitution abolished. He thought it was an extremely dangerous move. And he warned that Quakers would, would lose their religious liberty and, and the other rights that allowed them to, um, to practice law and, and, and politics in Pennsylvania, including you know, voting and holding office and serving on juries and more or less any kind of civic uh, activity that required a, you know, an oath or, to, or a religious test. So uh, he stood on the side of the charter, um, but, um, but, you know, as factions will do, um, they kind of lined up behind him. And, and so historians kind of saw that as Dickinson taking the proprietary side or, or the Presbyterian side um, against the Quakers. But it, it wasn't that simple. And really Dickinson's main aim throughout the whole contest was to preserve, uh, to preserve the charter.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Stamp Act, since so many of the Declaratory Act and the others can follow out of that. What was what was the Stamp Act? What was it intending to do?
2: So um, after the end of the French and Indian War, um, Britain was in debt and uh, was uh, looking to have the colonists um, bear more weight uh, of the expenses of the war. And so it ended in 1763. And shortly after that, they, they started passing uh, revenue acts. And this was a new, um, a new kind of um, legislation for Parliament. So for decades before this, Americans had been on, under what Edmund Burke called a, sort of a, a, an informal policy of salutary neglect. So basically, Britain more or less left america alone to do what uh... you know americans wanted to do and americans kind of quietly evaded any any navigation acts to control the 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 trade and and britain it was it was okay it worked for everybody but then once britain started cracking down and 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 seeking revenue uh... and started passing um, passing these laws so the stamp act was uh... it 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 decreed that any paper used in the colonies for really any purpose had to had to receive a royal stamp, kind of an embossed stamp, and otherwise the proceedings that you know uh, wouldn't be valid. So this went from everything from playing cards to legal documents to newspapers, and it would greatly interfere with the business of of the colonies, and it would be very expensive. And and most importantly, um, its purpose was not to regulate trade, which all Americans uh, agreed was uh, not just um, acceptable but desirable. This was to raise a revenue. And so there were um, a a great deal of protests up and down uh, the, 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 the coast. And um, and, and some of them were violent, uh, but there was uh, there was the Stamp Act Congress that met in New York, and Dickinson was a delegate there, and uh, and, and this was uh, the first you know kind of quasi national body um, of Americans. And Dickinson more or less served as the draftsman for that Congress. He wrote the documents that it produced um, uh, declaring their rights and their objection to, to the Stamp Act. And then as soon as, he got, um, he, as soon as he went home, he started publishing pamphlets that uh, basically served to instruct the colonists on how to resist properly. And uh, although these documents by Dickinson are not as well known as his later documents, um, one of the most important one is a little you know one page broadside called Friends and Countrymen. and in this he very clearly laid out exactly why the acts uh, the stamp Act was dangerous and and what the colonists should do and uh, he 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 said that the colonists should uh, simply ignore the act and engage in their quote unquote business as usual. And this is the first um, the first statement of um, uh, encouraging people to practice uh, what's what we now call civil disobedience. This was. Um, uh this was a, a mode of resistance that Quakers had uh, had pioneered back in the 17th century to secure their religious liberty. And Dickinson was uh, raised by Quakers in a Quaker family and uh, he later married into one of the most powerful Quaker families in, in Pennsylvania. And so he had this as part of his heritage and, and he could make this unique suggestion. And uh, people around the colonists, uh, around the colonies, they read this, and the Sons of Liberty uh, adopted it, and, and you know, people in Connecticut uh, adopted it, and it was, uh, it was much more um, effective either than um, rioting or simply evading the act, which was you know, more or less the only way the colonists had figured out how to resist it before. And so um, through, through all of these means, um, both violent and nonviolent, um, th- th- these all uh, contributed to the, um, the repeal of the Stamp Act.
1: Now, once the, the Stamp Act was repealed, you had mentioned the Declaratory Act. So how did that come into play at that time?
2: Well, um, of course, Parliament did not, uh, did not like that the colonists had resisted this act. And so they went ahead and said, fine, we'll repeal this act. Um, but we are going to assert our authority over you. Uh, in England at the time, uh, there, there was what's called the doctrine of parliamentary supremacy, and and so they they asserted this, and 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 it basically you know said that the Parliament can legislate for the colonies in all cases whatsoever.
1: And uh, an, another series of acts, which you mentioned previously, were the Townsend duties. Uh, were, were, did they come around at the same time as the Declaratory Act, or was it later that they would be imp- implemented?
2: Um, they came about the next year, uh, and it was a series of five, uh, five acts, and they were, um, for various purposes, they were to raise revenue, they were to punish the colonists for not obeying earlier acts. You know, for, for example, the, um, uh, the New York Restraining Act was to punish New York by suspending its legislature because uh, New Yorkers had not uh, obeyed the, the Quartering Act, which had been passed earlier. And, and so basically it was just a, a very um, aggressive assertion of authority by parliament over the colonists and very threatening.
1: At what point here did Dickinson decide that he wanted to write about dealing with these two uh, these two works?
2: Well, um, so I mean, he'd been keeping a close eye on Britain and these 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 dangerous policies, and so. Um, it, it, we don't know exactly when he began drafting the the letters, but um, I think it, it it must have been uh, maybe the late fall of 1767, uh, and um, it, we're, we're pretty certain that he wrote them all uh, all at one time, and then uh, started publishing them uh, um, one by one. In in, in, in twelve weeks, uh, beginning in um, uh, late October early December of 1767, and then um, they were they were finished in uh, uh, February, and then shortly after that, they appeared in pamphlet form, uh, in multiple editions. And uh, scholars have uh, have studied uh, the, um, uh, the 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 publication histories of. Of, of multiple pamphlets and um, it was for a long time thought that common sense sold more pamphlets than, than any other pamphlet during this, uh, during this era but um, r- subsequent scholarship has determined that the farmers' letters probably sold about as many uh, copies as common sense.
1: Uh, talk a little bit about the print culture in the colonies at that time. Uh, it sounds like there, there were printing presses all up in, throughout the colonies as, as his letters were being reprinted Uh, What what role did this printing culture play in the politics and the political discussions?
2: Well, um, That's a, that's a big topic, and uh, yes, uh, all the colonies had, uh, had had newspapers, printing presses. Um, they were, um, <clears throat> as they are now, they were they were highly political, um, uh, serving one generally serving one faction or another. Sometimes the politicians actually um, were partners in the newspapers and controlled what could go into the papers. So. <clears throat> So, for example, um, one of the papers that that published uh, the the Farmer's Letters was um, uh, the Pennsylvania Chronicle, and that was, um, uh, it was William Goddard who was the, edit- the editor and the, the printer, but um, his partner was Joseph Galloway, and Joseph Galloway was Dickinson's nemesis. The the two had been clashing since as early as 1758, shortly after Dickinson finished his legal training, and they really pretty much despised each other. And so when, when, when William Goddard published the farmer's letters in this paper that Galloway... Uh, uh, you know, was partly responsible for. Galloway was furious, and uh, and the problem was that uh, that these letters were so wildly popular that he really would not have been able to avoid printing them. Um, but but yes, they they were um, um, in uh, printers. Actually, uh, one of the one of the printers of a paper in New York uh actually funded the publication of the farmers letters himself because he thought that they were so important and that everybody should read them and uh, there were people who who disliked the farmers letters you know people who would later become loyalists like um, Benjamin Franklin's son uh, William Franklin and uh, and so you know they would sort of uh, um, you know wring their hands and 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 complain that the letters were very popular among uh, the Ordinary people, because they were written in such a, a smooth uh, style.
1: Now, given the the widespread nature of this printing culture, what was literacy common uh, throughout the colonies?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, yes, Americans tended to be um, uh, more literate than their European counterparts, uh, but. Uh, the problem was uh, not just that the, the, the lower sorts of people, um, uh, the working people, the poor, uh, they would possibly be illiterate, but they also just didn't have time. So even if they could read, um, they were too busy with work to, to really take the time to read something like this. And so Dickinson actually took great care. One of his main concerns in these letters, and in fact, pretty much everything he wrote um, was that he he would he wanted to speak to and reach ordinary laboring Americans and educate them on their rights, uh, their responsibilities, um, and their, the way that they should resist. In fact, in, in the very first letter, um, Dickinson says uh, uh, that. Um, <clears throat> this is just one of the, the greatest lines, I think. He says, um, um, as a charitable but poor person does not withhold his might because he cannot relieve all the distresses of the miserable, so, uh, so should not any honest man suppress his sentiments concerning freedom, however small their influence is likely to be. Perhaps he may touch some wheel that will have an effect greater than he could reasonably expect. And so this is um, very unusual because a lot of elite writers kind of paid lip service to, um, to uh, engaging the people, but it was widely understood that poor people because they were lacking in education, because they were dependent on, um, uh, on wealthier people, that they were lacking in sort of a key component um, for political participation at the time, which was, uh, w- which was virtue. And, and so Dickinson is really kind of breaking, um, breaking the mold here by, uh, by reaching out to ordinary people and saying, it doesn't matter if you're poor, um, that you should engage anyway and, and you have um, a duty to do so. And he actually directed uh, his seventh uh, letter um, specifically to the laboring people who didn't have very much time or means to educate themselves on, on the political situation or the, or, or the legal situation. And he, this was a, a theme that he continued throughout his work um, in another set of letters uh, called the Fabius Letters that he wrote uh, to, um, uh, to try to secure ratification of the Constitution in 1788. Uh, he, he again said that everybody has not just a, uh, a, du- a, a, um, a right but a duty to voice their opinions on these um, momentous affairs of state.
1: Now, in, in the, the very first letter, the very first lines of the first letter, he writes, uh, I am a farmer settled after a variety of fortunes near the banks of the River Delaware in the province of Pennsylvania. I received a liberal education and have been engaged in the busy scenes of life. Uh, why didn't he say, I'm a lawyer in Philadelphia?
2: Um, <clears throat> well, um, very much like today, uh, a lot of people didn't like lawyers. Uh, they were often seen as uh, you know, charlatans, charlatans. Uh, Uh, shady, sketchy people just sort of out for their own interests. Uh, And although Dickinson was exactly the opposite of that kind of lawyer, he was highly principled. Um, A lawyer, uh, that was not going to grab people's attention. He wanted a persona that would be both respected and trusted by both the elites and the common people. And so... The farmer has um, sort of layered implications, so um, it, it would evoke, uh, certainly among um, uh, most uh, elite Americans, sort of the ideal of the, of the independent Roman citizen you know, working his land and, and, and defending his land, and that he would be independent because he owned this land and, and, and he would be honest and virtuous because he worked this land. Um, now nobody, uh, nobody mistook Dickinson for an actual farmer who was, you know, walking behind a plow and or, or getting his hands dirty. Uh, he, he wouldn't be mis, misunderstood uh, in that way. Um, he made that clear that he had a library, he had money, he had, he had, um, uh, his friends were educated, and so they, they would know exactly that that he would be a gentleman farmer, but. Uh, the, the Roman um, sort of the, the allusions to, 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 the, uh, to ancient Rome that was just actually one inspiration um, there was also sort of a Quaker angle on this and um, uh, he could look to um, his father who had, uh, who had his, his plantation um, on the banks of the Delaware uh, he, uh, he, he uh, aspired to have his own uh, country seat um, the woman he eventually married uh, Mary Norris uh, the the daughter of Isaac Norris, who was the most powerful Quaker in the colony, as speaker of the assembly, he had a a very uh, genteel estate uh, also uh, on the banks of the Delaware, uh, and uh, and so there was this um, this ideal of this Quaker ideal of um, retreating from the bustle of the world, um, going inward and um, uh, communing with nature, finding God, and then listening to what God tells you through your conscience, and then going back into the world to do good. And so he had these two, um, these two things in mind, both the Roman ideal and the Quaker ideal.
1: Now, in the first letter, he, he writes about the, the New York legislature being suspended. Uh, what happened there?
2: Well um so when uh, uh, after the quartering act, which um, it, it, it's a misnomer that the um, the, the any the quarter, there were several quartering acts and and it was a misnomer that uh, the British were quartering soldiers in people's homes that that didn't happen. It was to quarter soldiers in outbuildings, barns, or sheds. <clears throat> And uh, and and the New York legislature simply said that they would not they would not enforce that. And so, as punishment, uh, Parliament said, "Fine, you don't enforce it. Uh, your legislature won't meet. And if the legislature can't meet, they can't they can't pass laws. They can't uh, they can't govern the colony. And so it was it was a, a very dangerous and threatening act that um, Dickinson feared. You know, what could happen to one colony could happen to any colony."
1: Now, uh, he says in, in that first letter that if the, the British Parliament has the legal authority to issue an order and to compel obedience, obedience, they have the same right to issue an order for us to supply these troops with arms, clothes, and every necessary. Uh, in, in some of these essays, uh, in the letters, he, uh, he often will argue that uh, one small thing will ultimately lead to these other things or will justify these other things. Uh, what were his concerns there?
2: So as, a, as an attorney, um, he was acutely aware of the importance of precedent. So uh, the, Brit- the British Constitution was unwritten. Um, it, it was a sort of an amalgam of uh, 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 common law, um, a practice, um uh, statute law, a few written documents such as the Magna Carta and uh, the the 1689 Bill of Rights um, <clears throat> but but when when your constitution is unwritten precedent becomes even more important and so for example if if the the British passed say say the Stamp Act and colonists went along with that and even if they didn't like it they went along with it they're agreeing to, uh, to recognize this act would be uh, would set the precedent for that act being legal and once that act was legal then Parliament could continue to issue other such acts and they could just refer to the colonists' earlier behavior and said well you obeyed this act you accepted this act that means we can we can impose these other acts so that was one way um, the precedent was dangerous and then um, speaking particularly to to the issue of of you know uh raising a revenue and and supplying uh, these soldiers with arms um, that spoke to another uh, perennial concern of Americans um, which was uh, the threat of a standing army and uh, the, the idea was that if there was a standing army, it was, uh, you know, paid mercenaries, these would be people who would be um, interested only in the money that they could get, and they weren't necessarily patriotic. They didn't care about their countrymen, and they would, <clears throat> they would uh, just, f- you know, fight uh, and, and, and oppress, oppress the, 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 the people. And so, uh, and, and, you know, it was, it was a, a danger, especially in a place like Pennsylvania, <clears throat> where uh, there was uh, the, the Pennsylvania Assembly w- of Quakers was not uh, keen on raising a militia to defend uh, to defend the, uh, the colony against uh, you know attacks by the French or or by Native Americans, and so there was always this, this threat that well you know if the Quakers don't raise their own army, well maybe maybe the Crown will, and you might have British soldiers ready to just, um, you know, to take over and and control everything that you do.
1: Now, in, uh, throughout the essays, there, there's a, a discussion about what types of taxes are, are legitimate or not, and there and, uh, seems to be a, an agreement that those that regulate trade are acceptable, but those that raise revenue are not. Why was that distinction important?
2: <clears throat> so, um, um Yes, it, it was. It was accepted that trade could be regulated, but uh, but raising a revenue was not, and the reason it goes to um, just uh, the the basic fact of representation. Um, <clears throat> giving, um, uh, giving money to the king or to parliament was historically seen as, um, as a gift by the people and, and, and a gift has to be freely given. And it cannot be freely given if the people do not have a say in the act that's being passed. And so because there was no way that the Americans could be represented in parliament, uh, Dickinson and others said, that means that, there is no way that the Americans can be taxed except by their own legislatures. So it was a very dangerous precedent and, uh, you know, one that they believed would um, result in, um, in, you know, what they said in, in somewhat hyper- hyperbolic terms would result in their slavery.
1: Now, you mentioned the word slavery, and that is something that appears throughout the letters, <clears throat> um, uh, but he's not necessarily referring to the institution of slavery that existed at the time, Uh, What did they mean by it in that context?
2: Right. So, yeah, um, it, this was um, as I said it was hyperbolic um, it, they they did not have any illusions that they would uh, end up like their uh, the, the African-american slaves that they themselves held in bondage they didn't when they spoke about shackles and chains it was purely metaphorical um, and uh, and but what they meant was that their liberty would be taken away because they would not have a say in their laws they wouldn't be represented and 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 the 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 crown or Parliament could come in and take their property without their consent. Um, <clears throat> so, what's this was a common uh, a common way to refer to uh, the dangers of uh, unbridled British authority. Um, but although Dickinson used this language as freely as anybody, it seems that he was the only one of the leading figures uh, to actually recognize the hypocrisy of his own language because, um, uh, really after the, after the Declaration of Independence was, uh, was issued and signed one of the, at, the, at one of his first opportunities that, that, that he had, uh, he freed his slaves. He freed them, uh, all of his slaves and he had a good number of slaves. It, it's not clear exactly how many, you know, possibly 60 to 80. So not a small number. And, uh, and he first freed them conditionally, um, that they would have to be in service for 21 years, uh, I believe, and, and then, the, then they would be freed. But that, that, he did that in 1777, but that didn't sit well with him. And so he, he gradually uh, started thinking about what more he could do. And so he issued a couple of uh, other manumission deeds, one in 1781 and one in 1786, and in these, he freed all of his slaves unconditionally. And he also provided in um, in one of his wills, uh, people wrote, uh, frequently wrote multiple wills. In one of his wills, he, uh, he provided uh, reparations for his slaves. And he did this while he was alive as well. Um, he especially wanted to care for um, the widows. Um, uh, among his former slaves, so he he rented land to them for just a nominal uh, fee, like a, a dollar a year. Um, he would provide them with foodstuffs, with with a cloth for clothing, um, and uh, sometimes uh, uh, he actually provided them money. And and he also uh, set aside um, some land and and possibly some funds in Delaware, uh, specific. Specifically for um, a school to educate uh, Black people in you know reading, writing, religion, that sort of thing, and so uh, he. Whereas today, you know, we we look at we look at this and say, well. You know, it's, 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 it's not quite enough, but it was far more than any of the, the leading founders uh, at the time. Um, you, you know, none of them, none of them, you know, freed their slaves uh, and, and paid reparations um, at the most. Uh, I think Benjamin Franklin had uh, one or two slaves who he eventually freed before his death, uh, but he took a while doing it. Um, Washington freed his, uh, the, his his slaves, the ones he owned in his will, um, but uh, um, it, n- none of the others uh, went this far. And Dickinson also wrote um, abolition legislation for, for Delaware, and he spoke against slavery in, uh, in the Constitutional Convention and uh, got some provisions added to the Constitution to end the slave trade and to uh, not... Uh, not use language that would suggest that slavery was uh, actually um, a, a legal thing, uh, an accepted uh, uh, legal institution. Um, we always wish that um, that uh, that people that someone like Dickinson would have done more, but but uh, he he went farther than anybody else, uh, any other leader of the era.
1: Did he write about his changing views on slavery?
2: Um, yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, not not a whole lot. Um, there is uh, a note on his first manumission deed uh, written by his daughter, and and she said that. Uh, well, you know, he did actually he did he did write a couple of things, but the, his daughter noted that uh, after this that first manumission deed, you know, he he just he 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 basically couldn't live with himself and and thought, you know, when he when he dies and he's he's standing at heaven's gate, you know, he he just wouldn't be able to, um, to, um, to meet the recording angel, uh, uh, with a clear conscience unless he did this. Um, and, and he did, uh, write on occasion about, um, uh, you know, speaking to, for example, the Delaware legislature, uh, you know, pleading with them to, um, not separate families and to, and to, treat their slaves at least kindly, if not free them. Uh, he, he, he was concerned about, uh, about the slaves themselves, but he was also concerned about slavery as an institution, as something that could fundamentally threaten um, the American experiment, uh, that, that slavery was always going to be a danger from within, and it needed to be eradicated um, if we were to survive as a unified, uh, unified polity.
1: Now, I, I want to go back to the, the letters. In, in, in the third letter, uh, he begins by acknowledging that people are commenting on his first two letters. So, uh, as these were being published, was he updating uh, his, his argument or uh, just it, it looked like he was interacting with people uh, as time was unfolding?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a little bit difficult to tell. Uh, we do not have the drafts of these letters. We have the drafts of many other of the publications that Dickinson wrote, but unfortunately not of these. I, I think that they were at his, um, his house in Delaware uh, when um, some... Uh, tories raided it uh during during the war and uh they allegedly took his papers and scattered them in the streets of new york and uh that may be where the drafts of the farmer's letters ended up there are no printer's copies that remain and um so we don't exactly know um but it's pretty certain that he wrote wrote these in advance and uh and then published them. And uh, but I think it, it's also possible that he he could have um, you know adjusted them as as he as he went along uh, because he he knew his audiences pretty well and he would know that they would be questioning at this point you know in the third letter why why is he writing these letters what what's the purpose behind them so he wanted to address that specifically and say you know in this case the purpose of these letters is to um, you know defend our rights firmly but peaceably respecting the British Constitution and and uh, and not doing anything that is um, uh, that's going to uh, possibly lead to bloodshed or or any kind of rift with the mother country
1: now also in in the third letter he, he presents a, a series of steps for redressing grievances where he says that the government can sometimes do things that are wrong, but that doesn't dissolve the obligation between governors and the governed. That is the duty of the governor to rectify the situation by presenting their grievances. And he says if, if their applications are disregarded, then that kind of opposition becomes justifiable, which can't be made without breaking the law or disturbing the public peace. Harsh methods cannot be proper until milder, milder ones have failed. Uh, and then at the very end of that, he, he mentions that the history, the English history affords frequent examples to resistance by force if the uh, grievances haven't been addressed. He seems to kind of work his way step by step up to this resistance by force.
2: Right, Uh, there's there's a continuum and this was not a new idea. Um, There were, um, depending on, what sort of political persuasion you were, whether you identified as a Whig or a Tory, um, you all started at the same place. Every every British subject would start with um, uh, the most mild form, and that would be, they said, you know, you know, praying and petitioning for relief. So you would, you know, present your grievances. You would, you know, pray, you would, you know, pray uh, to, to, um, uh, to God. But also, you know, uh, you, a a prayer is a request uh, to the king uh, to, to intercede and to relieve you of your suffering. And so that's, that was a starting point for everybody. Um, The, the, if, but if you were a Tory, that was your starting point and your ending point. That's as far as you really were were allowed to go. Um, and uh, uh, unless you, you know, you would include this sort of, you know, uh, just sort of passive obedience, you just kind of go limp and, and, and not really, uh, not really uh, obey or not really disobey. <clears throat> then um, if you were a Whig, there really wasn't much, um, m- much in between. You, you pretty much went from praying and petitioning. And then if that didn't work, your next your next step was rioting um, so you went, you know, from, from writing to rioting uh, to violence. And, and then from there, um, if you're following John Locke, you went uh, to revolution. Uh, and so there was this idea that there was a contract between uh, uh, the governed and the, and, and the government, and that if the, the, the contract was broken by, by the king or, or the government, that you had the right to overthrow that that. that tyrannical government and replace it with one that would protect you. Um, So now this is where Quakers come in. They had uh, uh, an entirely different view of this. Um, they, They also believed in beginning with praying and petitioning. Um, but they did not believe in revolution. Um, yet they were also not uh, people who believed in passivity. Quakers were pacifists, but they were not passive. And so they, that's when they, uh, yeah, but, and, and I should note that they were also one of the most, if the, not the most persecuted groups in uh, in 17th century England. They were brutalized uh, far beyond any other group uh, with uh, gr- you know, gruesome punishments and beatings and imprisonment. And their, um, their reaction to this, was uh, to to formulate this theory and practice of civil disobedience, where uh, you um, preserve the Constitution, you show respect for the Constitution um, by breaking the laws that are unconstitutional, and then after you've broken those laws, you you quietly, peacefully, and with love in your heart, accept the the punishment for breaking those laws. And the way this works is that it brings um, publicity. It makes you a martyr. And, you know, martyrs get attention, they get publicity, and they get, they get uh, people who, who, who become sort of, you know, converts to their cause. And so, um, uh, so this, was, uh, this was a way to more or less change the Constitution from the bottom up by convincing people um, that your cause is the righteous one and and, there, and it doesn't put the actual you know, unity of the polity in jeopardy. And uh, so, uh, you know, the Quakers did this first. Dickinson came along and popularized this, and uh, and then we see it crop up um, over the course of American history um, until uh, the most definitive, uh, clearest statement of this. Quaker disobedience, civil disobedience, uh, comes in Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And he wrote this at the urging of Quakers. And then Quakers were the first; uh, they published the first 50,000 copies of uh, of the le- a letter from a Birmingham jail, <clears throat> and and now civil disobedience is seen as as an acceptable form of of protest. But uh, for many, uh, for for a couple of centuries, I would say three centuries, it, it, or almost three centuries, it was considered to be um, uh, seditious and uh, treasonous, and uh, you know people had a hard time kind of wrapping their brains around it. Uh, but Dickinson, uh, he he came out and he, and uh, and he he advocated this form of of, uh, of protest and and to be clear, uh, civil disobedience uh, it, it does no violence to persons or property um, and it's also done publicly uh, and uh, so. Um, a lot of people want to say that uh, the, uh, the Boston Tea Party was an act of civil disobedience, but it, it actually wasn't. Uh, it, it, uh, it destroyed property. It was done in the dark of night. It was done with people in disguise, and nobody, nobody accepted any punishment for it. Um, so, uh, but, but Dickinson, uh, you know, he put forth uh, these ideas uh, that he then reiterated in, in the farmer's letters, and, uh, and he kept advocating this um, all, all, uh, all throughout the contest.
1: So he wrote these essays in the form of letters and each has a salutation. And uh, was that an accepted literary form for public discussion at the time?
2: Yes, uh, yes, it was. Uh, um, and th- there was a you know, a long tradition uh, of this. <clears throat> and uh, I-, I have some evidence that uh, he, m- he might have been inspired by uh, Jonathan Swift, who wrote a series of letters called uh, the Drapier's Letters. And these were um, written to alert Irishmen, uh, I- you know, people of Ireland, to, uh, to an issue um, where the British were trying to oppress them by, uh, I believe it was changing the value of coinage, and so he wrote these letters, and, and it, it 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 allowed I, the Irish to resist um, uh, this British encroachment on their liberties. And then there were there were other um, you know uh, there were uh, Cato's letters, uh, or they're probably the most famous. Um, but yes, it was uh, it was an acceptable uh, and and, and uh, effective literary genre.
1: Now, in the last letter, letter number 12, he, he talks about virtue and he says, he talks about the decay of virtue. A people is traveling fast to destruction when individuals consider their interest as distinct from those of the public. What, what did virtue mean to the, the colonists at that time?
2: Right. So, um, virtue was, uh, really a, a key term and a key idea. Um, virtue was everything. So, um, it was, it was seen to be, uh, mainly a mas- masculine trait and it was, uh, it meant that you were, a, a, a good, a good um, uh, synonym for virtue was disinterestedness. Now, a lot of people misunderstand this word today. It didn't, uh, disinterest is not the same as uninterest or, or lack of interest. Um, uh, disinterestedness, um, it, it's basically, uh, it means uh, impartiality. So, you know, if you have a judge, you want the judge to be disinterested. Um, and so, virtue meant that you were disinterested it meant that you could um, engage in public affairs um, and 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 not think about your own personal gain and uh, a, a gentleman's virtue and it was mainly seen that you know gentlemen had virtue um, women not so much and and certainly not poor people um, but uh, virtue was uh, almost shorthand uh, for one's, one's reputation and one's credit. And so if you were, um, you know, if you were lacking in virtue, you would have a hard time, you know, getting a loan. Um, You would have a hard time, um, you know, it was, it was, it was like a credit card almost. Um, So, um, so a gentleman's virtue was all he, all he had, it was the most important thing that he had.
1: Now, In letter number 10, he references Ireland and talks about how Ireland was being treated by the British government. So were the colonists seeing this in Ireland and, and do they think that that was possibly a foreshadowing what was going to happen to them?
2: Um, to some degree, yes. I, I think that that was really more um, the purview of the elite who who had the the privilege to be able to um, uh, to educate themselves on uh, on a situation that was f- pretty far removed from themselves, and so it was in a way sort of shorthand for Dickinson to uh, to suggest that yes, if if um, uh, if we don't resist now, th- this fate will also befall us. And so, you know, as a cautionary tale. Um, but uh, I, that, that was something that, uh, that would be more an argument that would resonate with um, the more literate uh, in his audience.
1: Now, one of the words that he repeats uh, throughout the the letters is innovation what do you mean by innovation
2: yes that, that's another interesting place there, there are many words uh, in the English language that uh, we use today that uh, are are positive but were actually quite negative at the time um, uh, uh, innovation was one of those words Um it was sort of, uh, it went hand in hand with precedent. And so um, uh, innovation in an unwritten constitution, uh, you don't want innovation because it's dangerous. You you don't know what you're getting. It destabilizes things. And so uh, it was better just to take a more kind of conservative approach and 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 not try to change things too much. Because, you know, again, if you don't have a mechanism in your constitution for making change, um, that uh, change will happen either you know, possibly not at all, um, possibly so slowly that you don't recognize it, Or it will be it will be drastic and violent, like a revolution. And so, innovation was something that uh, that especially a a well-trained lawyer would want to avoid and would want to warn against.
1: How were his letters perceived in England?
2: Well, uh, as uh, as they were, uh, they had a a very uh, very positive reception in America overall. But it, it was, strictly speaking, it was mixed because there were people who disagreed with them, um, albeit in the minority. Um, in England, it was the same. Uh, we can see in the newspapers and the pamphlets that there were many responses, and there were, there were many people who said, uh, these are wonderful. Um, he, he writes in a, in a fluid, manly style, and everybody should read these letters. And then there were uh, uh, supporters of the ministry uh, who said, Oh, it would be better for, for everybody if 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 Dickinson had never learned to read and write, and uh, and they were um, re, you know referenced uh, in in Parliament as as something treasonous, and uh, so you know both both sides of the coin. But uh, regardless, they really um, made Dickinson um, uh, s- seem to be the spokesman for the American cause.
1: Was Dickinson worried about retaliation? He did sign it a farmer rather than with his own name.
2: Well, um, <clears throat> I, I don't know that he was really actually worried about that. I mean, using a pen name had had various purposes. Yes, it was to hide your identity, um, because in this day and age, um, libel was uh, not considered the way we consider it today. Um, today, we say, well, if it's true, it's not libel. But in, in this age, um, if you wrote anything against the government, it was considered to be seditious libel, whether it was true or not. And so there would there be a certain um, certain degree of protection that he could get from using a pen name. But he also um, he wanted uh, uh, he didn't want any. Reputation that he had already acquired to influence people unduly. He wanted the, he wanted uh, the argument to be um, accepted on its own merit. So there was that, and he also, I think, in, in, in a very sort of savvy way, he wanted to um, to put forth this uh, persona of someone who Americans could um, aspire to emulate, and. This uh, this very um, this uh, virtuous farmer was exactly that kind of person, and I and I and I think also Dickinson aspired to be this person. I, I think he achieved it largely, but but I think it was an ideal version of himself that he he was reminding himself to live up to.
1: Now, there are 12 letters, and uh, he touches on different arguments in in, in the different letters, but was there one overriding theme, or was there one big takeaway that he wanted his audience to to come away with?
2: Yes. I mean, I think it was was sort of a twin concern, and it was that um, um, he wanted to educate people about their rights and liberties and ensure that they would resist... Firmly, but peaceably. Um, he, it was, it was the, the peaceful resistance that was the most important. Um, and he repeated over and over again um, that, that he would be very sorry if anybody mistook his letters to be advocating anything other than peaceful resistance. Um, uh, the, the last thing he wanted was uh, bloodshed, or revolution and separation. Um, Unfortunately, people saw in these letters what they wanted to see, and that's true, uh, or remained true, even in the, you know, uh, centuries uh, since they were written. Uh, People saw uh, these letters as... um, as advocating revolution, and and hence Dickinson has uh, received the um, the the title of penman of the revolution, which is really ironic because he
1: he he did not want revolution, um, and it's very clear in these letters. Did uh, how was he perceived after these letters came out? Did did people eventually find out that he wrote them?
2: Yes, he he his identity. Re- was revealed probably around March, I think it was, and and um, <clears throat> he was uh, he was idolized. Um, uh, he was um, he was toasted. He was um, uh, he, they were. You know, You know, portraits done and statues done in wax and and etchings in copper and gold and uh, poems written, uh, pamphlets dedicated, books dedicated, poems. uh, If I didn't say that before, um, and uh, and and he was really. uh, You know, he was. uh, His opponents made fun of. Uh, you know, we can only call these people really his fans, and 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 they were ridiculed by by uh, his enemy Joseph Galloway. Um, you know, as oh, you know, the the divine farmer, and and uh, so yeah, he was really seen as 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 an American hero, and um, uh, the um, the other thing that sort of I, I would say sort of. B- you know, boosted these, uh, the, the the popularity of these was that he wrote um, that summer, uh, the summer of 1768, he wrote uh, America's first patriotic song, which caught on like wildfire. Um, I like to, to joke with my students that it was America's first number one hit single, and it was sung in taverns across the Across the colonies, and so people would uh, they would they would you know for example at the um, uh, the the anniversary of the repeal of the Stamp Act they would they would uh, sing the the Liberty Song as, as or the Song of Liberty as it came to be called and 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 toast the farmer or you know toast the farmer and then sing the farmer's song and and so it was really a great way uh, to sort of embed these principles um, uh, in in people's minds and and I should also say uh, going back to your question about um, what was Dickinson's main purpose, uh, in addition to peaceful resistance, the other thing that Dickinson saw um, uh, that was necessary much earlier than a lot of the other leading founders was that he wanted America to unify. He knew that, um, uh, that America would never, uh, the colonies working independently of one another would never succeed in holding off Britain, that they had to act in unison, they had to unite, they had to, to act as one. And so, you Before the Farmers' Letters, uh, you know the the colonies were really just quite. uh, They were like separate countries. Um, Some of them had different languages. They had different religions. They had different uh, different you know governments and. Um, they they really were were not at all united, and uh, th- and that was a problem. Actually, you know, well maybe it's still a problem, but um, but uh, he he um, he got the colonies united in a way they had never been before, and part of the one of the results of this was that he helped Americans see that they had a, a distinct identity separate from being Britain being British and that yet yes they were they were before they were all connected through Britain but now he wanted them to see that they were actually Americans connected by virtue of being Americans and that they had, uh, they had similar interests. And, and so he added a line in his Liberty song, um, uh, you know, uh, united we stand, divided we fall. And that wasn't a new sentiment, but he popularized it and got people saying it uh, uh, and toasting to it
1: uh, over and over. We only have a couple of minutes left. Did, did his arguments make have any effect on the British Parliament? Did, did they change uh, uh, their concept of their own power over the colonies? It angered them. Um, I, I think
2: that Parliament was too, um, <clears throat> too kind of tone deaf and too um, uh, intent on... Asserting its authority, uh, to be anything but angered and annoyed by these letters, they they did take it as uh, sort of the, the the tenor of of uh, the, the American um, attitude, uh, but it, it didn't it didn't bring them to, to sort of any sort of uh, um, rational decision. It just it it, it just made them um, uh, come down on America harder than than they had before.
1: Well, we've been speaking with Jane Calvert. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Kentucky and the director and editor of the John Dickinson Writings Project. Jane, thank you for joining me. Thank you.
0: Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.